I invite you to take out your Bible. Uh, if you brought it, turn to Ephesians chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible, by the way, I would love to give you one. Um, after the worship service, come see me, and uh, I've got a Bible for you. Uh, if you don't have a Bible with you right now, you can look in the pews or the chairs, uh, see if there's one underneath, or you can get on your phone and Google Ephesians chapter 4. We've been going through Ephesians for a few weeks now. And I'm going to read chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. The Apostle Paul is writing this letter to Christians living in the city of Ephesus. And this is what he writes, as a prisoner for the Lord, because he's writing from prison as he's uh, writing this. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling that you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bonds of peace. Because there is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father who is over all and through all, and who is in all. But to each one of us, grace has been apportioned. Grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, when he ascended, when Christ ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. What does he ascended mean? Except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions, And he who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. So Christ gave himself, gave apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers to equip the people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God, and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. And then we will no longer be infants, tossed back and forth by the waves, and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. From him the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Um, You you might remember that I preached on Ephesians chapter 4 not long ago, maybe two months and um, just so you will know, I, I didn't want to preach the same message twice. Um, I want to focus on something that I didn't focus on as much two months ago, and that is serving. What do you think of when you think of uh, being a servant or being in a position of serving? Uh, 
running through a couple of things that you may be thinking. One, you, if you're like me, you might think of the one thing that you hate to do that you know you got to do um, uh, at home to serve your spouse. Uh, for me, that's hanging things on walls or hanging up uh, things in windows like blinds or I, I that's that's the not even the joke it's the sad story that runs in our family of dad having to hang stuff on walls it's the thing that I hate to do but I know I got to do to serve uh, Melissa uh, maybe you think of maybe in the kind of those terms this humble task maybe it's something that you don't mind doing but it's a humble task and you think of that humble task and you do it uh, for no reward, no no thanks, you just do it um, to help others. Maybe you think, and I'm sure there's at least one of you here this morning uh, that thinks this. They think of serving in, in the church, and they think, oh, uh, there's always too much to do in the church, too few people to do it, and I don't want to get burned out. Um, and so when I say serving this morning, I recognize that Across this room, we may have different emotions that we attach to being a servant or, or serving. Well, when we look at Ephesians 4, what I hope we will see this morning is how important serving is and how necessary it is for unity in the church, for God to do what he wants to do in his church. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to go through several statements about serving. And if you want to follow along in your note sheet in your bulletin, you can do that. You can fill in some blanks. I'm going to rearrange the order of those just slightly. But the first thing I want to say about serving that we see from Ephesians chapter 4 is this. Serving is not optional. <laughs> now, I could tell you that serving isn't optional, and some of you would say, because you think that I'm a trustworthy pastor, well, I guess it's I guess it's not optional. Um, others of you, um, particularly with many guests, first time guests today, you might say, uh, uh, "Well, how do I know that that's true? That serving isn't optional. Why should I? Why should I believe you?" So let me try this morning. Um, some sermons are inspirational, some are informational, some are instructional, some are a blend. Uh, depending on where in the sermon we are, this next section of the sermon is more instructional, more teaching of um, how to get the most out of this first part of Ephesians chapter 4. And I want to show you something. So if you kind of roll up your instructional sleeves for a moment, I want to try to show you something about Ephesians 4 that will reveal to us why serving is not optional. Okay, so we need to know something about the structure of Ephesians 4. Um, Bolivar, recent MDiv recipient, might know this term more than others. Uh, Ephesians chapter 4 is structured in the form of a chiasm. Now, I don't really care that you know that word chiasm I don't really care that you know that word, but I, but I do care what you, that you know what it, it points to. Um, a chiasm was, was an ancient literary device that was used to help uh, readers or listeners know what the main point 
of the teaching is. And we use literary devices all the time, don't we? So that our hearers, our audience will know what is the main point. A chiasm does that through the structure of the text. Um, so what a chiasm is, it's a, parallel, a series of parallel statements, parallel statements that serve as bookends that help focus or funnel you towards the main point of the text. And as I was thinking of chiasms, what I thought of was actually the children's story or the children's chant, um, going on a bear hunt. Going on the on a bear hunt. You know that, that little chant if you have little kids, you certainly know it. If it's been a while, you may have to scroll through your your memory. Going on a bear hunt. Um, I'll walk you through it. So going on a bear hunt is this chant that you would often do with kids at camp or you're reading the story going on a bear hunt. And really, it's a, it's a giant chiasm. It's a series of parallel bookends that focus you to the main point of the story. Now, those of you who remember going on a bear hunt, where does going on the bear hunt begin and end? It begins and ends at the same place. Where does it start? Where does it finish? I might have heard it being shouted out. I'll give you a hint. It starts and finishes at home, correct? You go out the front door at the beginning. You you return to your home at the end, going through the front door. Does anyone know going on a bear hunt? I'm sure some people are here. <laughs> okay. Oh, okay. I was not anticipating people not knowing going on a bear hunt. <laughs> Uh, going on a bear hunt, going to find or catch a big one. So they go out the front door, and then thus begins the journey of going on the bear hunt. <laughs> Even some of my parents are like, no, we don't know going on a bear hunt. Um, all right, for those of you who know, Melanie, do you know going on a bear hunt? All right, great. I got to talk to Melanie. Going on a bear hunt begins and ends uh, at home, but you go on this journey. And then you come return on this journey. And there's a seri- series of parallel bookends that focus you to the main point of the story. You go out of your home, and what's the first thing you do? You have to go through the, the field. And so you're telling the kids about going through the field, and it's really interactive. Swish, swish, swish. You're walking through the field. But you don't walk through the field once. You have to do it twice because it's parallel bookends that are focusing you towards the central point of the story. So you have to walk through the fields on your journey, and then you have to walk through the fields on your way home. Next part of going on a bear hunt. Well, depending on how you tell it, there's a stream. And you get to the stream, and you tell the kids about going through the stream. Splish, splash, splish, splash. Can't go over the stream. Can't go around the stream. you got to go through it. So splish, splash, splish, splash. Going through the stream. But you don't go through the stream once. You have to do it twice. Because there are parallel bookends in this story that are focusing you towards the main point. After the stream, what is there? Uh, there's a forest or a mud pit or you get to make it up. That's the, that's the beauty of going on a bear hunt. As a storyteller, you get to make up the next obstacle. You can't go wherever, you can't go around it. You got to go through it. So you're going through the forest or you're going through the mud. You don't do it once. You got to do it twice because... There are parallel bookends that are guiding you to the main point of the story. 
None of those things are the main point. Going through the field, not the main point. Crossing the river, not the main point. Going through the forest or the mud, not the main point. What's the main point of the story going on a bear hunt? It's getting to the bear. That's the main point. That's the part that has the kids giggling and laughing and screaming because you go inside this cave and you wake up the bear and then you got to repeat the whole story because the bear is now chasing after you. Well, that may or may not be a helpful um, example of the structure of Ephesians chapter 4. But we're going to look at this now in going in the bear hunt style and look for the main point of Ephesians chapter 4. All right. So look for the parallel bookends. I'm going to put a series of statements on the board. Uh, Verses 1 and 2, and the bookend of verses 1 and 2 is the very end of the passage that we read, verses uh, 15 and 16. So verses 1 and 2, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Now look for the bookend, verses 15 and 16. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up. When each part is working properly, makes it makes the body grow up so that it builds itself up in love. So you see the bookends here. The What does it mean to, to live in love with one another? And the, so there's common wording in these bookends. doesn't have to be that way. But one of the unique things about chiasms is the bookends help interpret each other. Helps us to understand. One bookend helps us to understand understand, uh, the other. Bearing with one another in love, the end of verses 1 and 2, that that helps us to understand what the Apostle Paul means when he is talking about each part working properly and the body growing up, building itself up in love. It's it's when people are bearing with one another through their differences in the church. Remember that Paul, we've talked about this as we've talked about Ephesians, Paul is writing to a very mixed church, people of different backgrounds, all kinds of differences in the church. And he says, God wants to... Bring unity and make you one. So bear with one another, despite your differences, in love. And when we do that, the church grows mature, as verse 16 says. Okay, that's one set of bookends. Then we get to another one that helps funnel us towards the main point. Verses uh, 3 and 4 and 5. Be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. Paul writes, there is one body, one spirit, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Now let's look at the bookend of that. should be verses uh, 13, or verse 13. Paul writes, until we attain to the, should be the unity of the one faith. You're thinking, huh, well, ancient readers would be picking up on the parallelism that funnels them to the main point of this passage. Those are all important statements, but they're not the climax. The next set of bookends, verse 7. But grace was given to each one of us, and its bookend is verse 11. Christ gave 
See, there's giving that happens by Christ. Christ gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, or the shepherds, and the teachers. So Christ is giving stuff. That's pretty important, but it's not the climax. It's not the main point. All of these bookends narrow in on the main point of the passage. It's verses 8, 9, and 10, this this really interesting quoting of, of Psalm 68. Actually, the main point of this text is the part that most people skip over when they're reading it because Paul starts quoting Psalm 68, which we'll look at. Like, why is he doing that? I don't know. It's confusing. So let's look at 8, 9, and 10. This is the, this is the main point. This is getting to the cave and finding the bear. All right, verses 8 and 9. When Christ ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. And he had also descended into the lower regions of the earth. Um, now let's look at verse 10. He who descended, notice how these work together. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. This is the main point. Christ descended and ascended. He he descended. What does that mean? Well, Christ really died. He came to the earth to really die on the cross. But then he ascended. He was victorious over death. Why did Christ do that? So that he could give gifts to men, gifts to his people, and then look at verse 10, and so that he might be able to fill all things, fill the whole universe. Let me suggest, this is why serving in the church is not optional. Because Christ died on the cross, rose from the grave, so that he could give gifts to you and give you as a gift to serve in the church, to serve one another in the church. And as we serve in the church, as people serve one another in the church, something amazing happens. Look at verses 12 and 13. People are being equipped to serve so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature And then what happens? Attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Remember, Christ wants to fill all things with himself. And when we serve one another, Christ fills the church with all of his fullness. So jump down. If you're in the note sheet, part of the bulletin, jump down a few lines to the one that says, When Christians serve one another, when Christians serve one another, Christ fills the church and the world. When Christians are servants to one another, we get filled with the whole measure of the fullness of Christ as the church serves one another. And as others are invited into the church, and as the church goes out as a servant, what happens? Christ fills the world with his presence. And this all happened because Christ died on the cross. He descended so that he could ascend, so that he could give gifts to his people and people as gifts, so that he could fill his church, so that he could fill 
the whole universe with his presence. This is why serving is not optional in the church. Because Christ died and rose so you could be a servant. Next thing, a statement about serving. Serving is Christ's posture to the world. What is key is how Christ chooses to relate to people. One of the key scriptures of this is Philippians chapter 2, which which, uh, describes the attitude that Christ uh, showed. Paul writes, we're going to look at uh, Philippians 2, verses 6, 7, and 8. And in verse 5, Paul says to have the same attitude, the same mindset, the same posture as Christ Jesus. And then he writes this, verse 6, Christ, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. So notice Christ humbled himself by seeing himself as a servant. And that is the posture that Christ takes towards the world. He came to serve. Luke chapter 10, verse 45 says this. Jesus says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life. He's speaking to give my life as a ransom for many. So, overall, Jesus saw people not as objects who exist to serve him, but rather as people for him to serve. That is Christ's posture. Paul says, let that posture, let that attitude, that mindset be yours as well. So the next point about serving, serving is our posture to one another in the church. Let me put... Verse 12, back on the screen, verses 11 and 12, uh, say this. After that, so Christ himself gave the apostles, the pastor, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers to equip the people of his church for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. Now, that word service, uh, maybe in your Bible, uh, that, that word translated as service is translated as ministry. Um, because it comes from the same words. It means the same thing. And we talk about ministry a lot in the church. We have ministry teams at the church. You can serve on the children's ministry team. You can serve in the greeter ministry. You can serve in the audio-video ministry. We have these teams. And because we have these ministry teams with certain ministry tasks, it may seem that ministry is done by the people that are serving on one of those teams. And if you're not serving on one of those teams, then you don't have to, you don't have to think about ministry or, or service. And that is completely the opposite point of Ephesians chapter 4. Um, the... Uh, 
A minister in Jesus' day. Think of that term, minister. A minister in Jesus' day was a servant. Matthew chapter 20, verses uh, 25 and 26. Say this, Jesus called them together, his disciples, and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. So Jesus is saying, you know the way of the world. You have people in power, and the people in power are just kind of lording it over people. They're bossing others around. They're exercising their, their authority over others. But not so with you, my disciples. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. It's the same word, ministry, minister and servant, the same word. Um... In Jesus' day, a minister was the, was the waitress at the, the local eating establishment. That was the minister, the one who waited on tables. It's the word minister, is the word that we get our word deacon from. Jesus says that should be the posture of everyone in the church, being a servant So whether or not you're on a ministry team or not, everyone at the church is to be a servant. Next point on serving. Serving is the backbone of unity. So let's look at verse 13 again. We're being equipped for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. And then verse 13, until we all reach Unity in the faith. Unity in the knowledge of the Son of God. And we become mature. We, we grow. We, we attain to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Verse 16 says this, From Christ, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each work does its part, as each person does his or her work. As each person takes this posture of being a servant to one another, we as a church grow into one mature, healthy church in unity. And remember, Paul's concept of a church in unity is not where all the same people get together because they like one another, because they have everything in common. Because they want to enjoy one another's similarities. That is not Paul's concept of the church. Rather, Paul's concept of the church is where God is bringing people who are very different from one another. And says, now, bear one another through those differences in love. Serve one another. And through your service, towards one another. I'll make you one. And finally, I want to bring this out about unity. Think about what uh, unity in the church, what it, what it means for, for you. It means, it means this. Unity requires and inspires sincerity. Let me tell you what I mean. Um, because we are a church um, Because people with great differences make up a church, it's very easy to try to blend in, to fit in, to cover up 
some of those differences. And maybe the difference isn't a superficial one. Maybe it's maybe it's just part of uh, the way that you respond to others or your personality. Maybe it's a brokenness in you. And it's so easy to just want to cover that up because we have this crazy idea that unity is built on similarities when God wants to establish unity through our differences. And it's easy to cover up our insides. It's easy to cover up our brokenness. It's easy to cover up um, something that we're ashamed of. It's easy to cover up something that makes us unique or different from others. Unity requires and inspires sincerity. Now, that word sincerity really comes from two It's an ancient word used back in the ancient Roman Empire. Um, It comes from two Latin words, sine, meaning without, and sere, C-E-R-E, meaning wax. Sine, sere, without wax. Now, here's how it was used in ancient times. Uh, Pottery, ancient pottery, very important in the ancient world um, for life. And if you were a potter, if you were a dishonest potter, if you were to uh, break your pottery before you fired it in the oven, uh, you could use wax to bring those broken pieces together, to kind of glue them together, and then stick that pot in the oven, fire it up, and after the firing process, you, you, you really couldn't see the wax but it was an inferior product. It, 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 uh, it would break more easily. And so there was a hidden flaw um, that was covered up by wax. And so honest potters would often label their pottery sine sera, without wax. This was not broken, covered up by wax before it was put in the oven to bake. They wanted to make sure their buyers knew they were not hiding some flaw with wax. Sincerity, being sincere with one another, is refusing to cover up our flaws, to, uh, to hide them, to, uh, you know, let's, let's wear a mask, let's put on a show pretending that we are someone that we're not. Um, now, here's why this is important. This is, this is here why unity demands, requires sincerity. Uh, because it's through these broken parts in our life that Christ so often develops a gift that he, that he gives to us. It's through his grace working in our life, through some bit of brokenness, Christ develops a gift of ours, a desire to serve someone, um, a a healing that takes place in our life that that Jesus wants to use as we serve one another. And Christ puts together uh, these broken people. That's us here at this church, broken people. He says, don't. Don't hide my work that is in you. Don't be afraid to reveal how my grace has been at work in your life, helping you overcome a mistake or sin, helping you to overcome brokenness. 
Don't be afraid to show that. Now, verse 7 says, But to each one of us grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. Now, that does not mean that some of us are saved to different degrees than others. That is not the point of verse 7. The point of verse 7 is that we have each received grace from Christ in a different way, where Christ has been working to heal us, to bring newness to our life. And he says, when I put you together in my church, do not cover that up, my work at your, in your life. Because in that point of a brokenness, that's where Christ develops these gifts as he brings grace and healing and newness to our life. So Jesus says, be sincere with one another. Don't hide that. You're, you're my raw material that I will use to build unity in my church. And don't you see how unity also inspires sincerity? Um, unity that is built on serving one another says to people, you can bring your true self here. The one, the true self is being transformed by Christ, but still kind of messed up. Construction is in progress in your life. You can come and we will be a servant to you and you can be a servant to us. And through that way of relating to one another, Christ builds his unity in the church. Um, Listen, when it comes to service, you can serve on a ministry team. You can do that. And we sure could use servants on our our teams, our children's ministry team is need more volunteers as we grow in number of kids. Um, there, there's, there are teams that could use some additional servants. Our nursery ministry uh, could use additional servants. One of the one of the uh, volunteers serving in a nurse in the nursery acts as a servant to actually our paid staff by affording them a possibility to every once in a while come work, be a part of the worship service and not serving in the nursery. That's a way you can serve someone another by being on a team. Our facility team needs you if you don't mind doing some simple repairs to our aging church facility that is in frequent need of people coming and doing some simple repairs. Greeting ministry, you can serve on the greeting ministry team so that you can help people feel included, not excluded on Sunday morning. Our audio video team, I can go on and on about how these different ministry teams could use different servants. All that's true. But I, I don't want us to miss out on this fundamental fact, and it's this, that um, it's, uh, it's not fundamental that serving on one of those teams is what makes you a gift to the church. That's, that's, not, that's not quite right. You can, do, you can serve on one of those teams, but it's not, you're not limited to serving on one of those teams in how you are a gift, how Christ gives you as a gift to the church. Fundamentally, you are a gift to the church by looking at needs of others and serving others by helping to meet those needs. That is fundamentally the heart of a servant. And when we all have that heart, that attitude, oh my, Christ 
will fill his church with the fullness of his presence. And Christ died and rose again so that he could do that. Will you pray with me and listen to what the Spirit of God may be telling you this morning? Our gracious Lord Jesus Christ, It is it's very easy to miss out on this opportunity to, to, to be a servant. Forgive us when we think that you died on the cross simply so that I could have my sins forgiven and not be transformed and not to give my life to you and have you shaped my heart in a way where I desire to be a servant to others? Forgive us, Lord, when we don't see this beautiful fact that you have given us as gifts to one another. And that by being a gift to each other, you you fill us with your presence. As we get ready to enjoy this communion meal together, help us to realize that you are filling us as we eat and drink with your presence, your very presence. You serve us at this table, and then you invite us to go and serve one another. Will you reveal that to our hearts this morning, Lord? We pray this in your name.